If you don't know, I'm Jordan. I'm usually up here leading worship, and the eldership asked me to teach this evening, so it's a humbling opportunity, and I do pray that the Lord is glorified tonight. All right, let's get started. We just read in Luke chapter 2, the very tail end there, it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Tonight's theme, Advent theme, is Savior. And so I wanted to start by digging into the basic definition of Savior. You know, when you hear the word Savior, I mean, my first question is Savior for what? It's, it's in this context, I think it's a little more clear what we're talking about, but just getting into the word Savior, I think will help us frame the rest of the evening. In a similar passage in Matthew 1, 21, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the word save, that Greek word sozo, it means to save or deliver, to keep from harm, preserve, or rescue. And rescue is the word that I'm going to lean in on. Also, maintain its original form or state, preserve. So to rescue and to preserve. So to experience salvation or to be saved could be understood as to be rescued or to be preserved. So what's the word Savior? Luke 2.11, the one we just read in the opening of this, of this evening's passage. Born this day in the city of David, a Savior. Uh, very similar. The one who rescues, the one who preserves. So we've defined the basic term of Savior. But if you're anything like me, which I think, you know, thankfully most of you, you're you're not, but if there's a few of you out there like me, there's a lot of questions still circling around your head. And I, I, I kind of overcomplicate things. That's a tendency that I have. My wife's probably amening, and if my business partner is in here, he would as well. But I have all these questions. The first one might sound irreverent, but it's who says we need a Savior? Why do we need salvation? What do we need to be saved from? What are we saved to? Who's the Savior? I think we all know. And spoiler alert, if you don't, the next question on my mind was, why does Jesus have the authority to save? Why did Jesus need to be born a man to save? Is it just an idea that God had? It's like, this is a good idea. We'll just have Jesus be born a man. And I think for those of you who know the significance of that, uh, that might seem silly, but I, I do think it's a decent question to ask. And so tonight I would like to to pose some of these questions and give us just time to, to pause and to reflect on some of these things that maybe we don't think about all the time. There's very simple principles of our faith, but we don't always give time to, to pause and, and, and dwell on them. And the last question, why would God save us? So moving right along, who says we need a Savior? Now, I obviously this does sound slightly irreverent, and this is mostly supposed to be from the position of the unbeliever. So if, if you're not uh, someone who would call yourself a believer, if you would not call yourself a Christian, this would be a very fair question to ask, in my opinion. Who says that we need a Savior? The story of salvation begins in the first pages of Scripture. But before we get to the story of salvation, I can't help but go back a few chapters which answers this seemingly irreverent question, who says we need a Savior? I think it's safe to say that most of us clearly know the answer, but we're going to dig in for the reasons I just said. Genesis 1-1, I think, is the answer. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. And as you know, on the sixth day, Genesis 1.27, God created man. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. The point I'm making here is simply that God and God alone has the authority. If God created all things and if God formed us with his hands, then God and God alone is the one who determines our need. We may not think we need a savior. And I, I understand that we can justify a lot of things in our lives. We don't need to live a holy life. We don't need to, um, I, could, I can go on with examples, but you get the point. But God and God alone is the one who has the authority if he is the one who created all things. Amen? Anyone agree with that? All right. Moving to Genesis 3.15. Like, we like to stay in Genesis a lot here. I love it. I will put enmity. This is, this is God speaking to the serpent, and we read this last week. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This, of course, is the first mention and a promise of the future Savior, the snake crusher, as we like to coin the Savior, the snake crusher. The snake might strike the heel of the Savior, but the Savior will crush the serpent's head. The Savior would defeat the serpent who tempted and deceived mankind and restore what was broken and lost. So God and God alone, the creator, is the one who has the authority. He's the one who says. So why do we need salvation? I don't want to make this too long because most of you are familiar with, with the story of the fall, but that would be the simple answer. We were created, we were given instruction, and the, the basic way to put it would be that we determined that we know better. We determined that we know what's right. You know, as the serpent deceived Adam and Eve, did God really say? We start questioning, well, actually, does he really mean I might know better. And we do this we do this probably on a regular basis in different areas of our lives, at least in our hearts. But the problem is the fall. We need a substitute for our sins. Is the main reason to, of being saved to remove our guilt? It is to remove our guilt, but is it the main reason? I, I don't want to say what is the primary reason for salvation. I, what I would like to do tonight is I would like to highlight some, some things that maybe are uh, often underlooked, let's say, and, and some things that Scripture seems to highlight that may not be highlighted in the uh, common modern Christian, Christian church. Here at Refuge, I think we do a great job at highlighting these things. But that's what I'd like to dig into tonight. So let's reconsider. Why do we need salvation? I believe one of the primary reasons we need salvation is to reestablish God's glory through our lives as his image bearers. The bad news is not simply that because of sin we deserve death or God's wrath. There's more to it. We do deserve those things. The bad news is that our sin prevents us from doing what God created us to do, 
to spread his fame and glory through all creation by bearing his image to our lives and through our children and their children and so on and so on. And this is kind of the, the point that I want to highlight throughout, throughout this evening. But moving on to all my questions, and I will be skipping a few, I think it's, of course, so important to answer the question, who is the Savior? Who is the Savior? Jump in if you know the answer. It's not a trick question. Jesus is the one who saves. Again, looking back at Matthew 121, in case you missed it, it says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save. Jesus is the one who saves. And I thought it'd be fun. I just think it'd be interesting, and it's good. It's a good practice to remind ourselves of, of things like this. What's behind the name Jesus? When we hear Jesus Christ, is the full meaning of the name, is it, is it coming into our hearts and minds? So I wanted to do that very quickly. Why would the angel of the Lord say, name him Jesus, for he will save? This implies that the name Jesus is directly related to save, right? Call him Jesus, because he will save. But when looking at the English and Greek, there's no real obvious connection. I have the Greek words here. I won't bore you with them at the moment. But the bottom line is that the only way the conversation really makes any sense is if, is if it's happening in Hebrew, if that's clearly what's happened here. When looking at the Hebrew, it becomes perfectly clear. It says, call his name Yeshua for Yoshia. All right, Yeshua is a shortened version of the name Yehoshua, which is Joshua in English. Yehoshua means Jehovah is salvation. More commonly would have been not using the name Jehovah. But the Lord is salvation, or Hashem is salvation. The Lord is salvation. I think it'd be great to read that into the text together. You shall call his name Yeshua for Yoshia, his people from their sins. Or in English, you shall call his name the Lord is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. Kind of makes a lot more sense, right? Call his name the Lord is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus, Jesus is the one who will save. In Luke 2, as we read, after it says the word Savior, it says Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Often we can forget the meaning of the word Christ, unfortunately. I think so often in our culture, Christ is often attributed as Jesus' last name. I think most of us know that that's not the case. Christ, Christos, to shmir, or to be anointed. The Hebrew word would be Mashiach, which is Messiah, essentially the anointed one. And it's not just anyone anointed well, with oil. This refers to the aforetold anointed king, is how we should read this here, I believe. The Lord is salvation, for he will save the foretold anointed king, the Christ. The Christ is the foretold anointed king. So I think that's good as we look at Scripture. Every time we read in the Bible, Jesus, Jesus Christ, you know, if we, if we understand these words, I think it can edify our hearts and encourage us even more as we remember what these words mean. My next question here on my list why did Jesus need to be born a man in order to save us? Seed of David. Yes, there's plenty of prophecies in Scripture that must be fulfilled. 
there's some ideas here that I have circling, and I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get them out the best, but let's, let's give it a try. So all of the incarnation is central requirement for salvation and essential to this Advent season. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because next week, I believe John is going to be teaching the incarnation. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to do a super deep dive, but I'm going to highlight some things that I think are significant, uh, at least that have been on my heart and that I'd love to share with you. So why must the Savior be a man? There are several reasons, I believe, that it was a requirement for the Savior to be human. As I said earlier, was this just some idea? Like, yeah, this would be interesting. Let's make the Savior of mankind uh, my son uh, incarnate. You know, it's, it's not just some wild idea. What I want to get across tonight is that it had to be this way. I believe that it was a requirement for the Savior to be human. But I'd like to start with the overarching idea that we may not be mindful of when thinking about the story of salvation. And the best way that I've been able to describe it is God's created order, right? As I said, it, it had to be this way. Scripture is filled with royal and legal language that I believe stems from God's created order, which humanity must operate in. in this, these are questions that I might be asking because I uh, tend to be a challenger. Um, it's an exhausting trait that I wish I didn't have. Truly, I could be a bit of a contrarian, and I trust me, I'm paying for it because my daughter is almost five, and if you know her, you probably know what I mean. But why? So that's my question. Scripture is created with this language in which humanity must operate as if there's this created order. I believe we can conclude from Scripture that God created us within a regal system and instituted a defined legal system with boundaries that cannot be violated. It helps me to think about it this way. Clearly, there are laws of nature, right? You guys are familiar with laws of nature. The laws of physics, the law of gravity, we don't really argue with those, at least mostly we don't argue with those. Some do. And for the most part, we just accept it. There's a law of gravity. They cannot change, right? We may have artificially altered these laws of nature, but they will still always remain. Whether we agree with them or not, they are. Similarly, a helpful biblical example, I think, would be something like the law of the Spirit and the law of sin and death. It is often commonly understood that the law of sin and death, and I might be stepping on some toes here, hopefully not, that is referring to the Old Testament law making us aware of sin, being insufficient, and essentially producing death. And there are things true in that phrase, but I believe that it's not what that means. I would strongly argue the point that that is not true. If that's true, it makes it difficult to properly interpret the law of the Spirit in the same verse. Romans 8, 2 should be on the screen. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So there are two laws there, right? And here's, I think, a consistent way to interpret that verse. Similar to the laws of nature, like the law of gravity. There are laws of God's created order. There's the law of sin and death, which is simply that sin causes death. The law of the Spirit is the reverse. The Spirit gives life. They are in contrast to one another. These are the laws within God's created order. I debated using the word law. I know it's very, it's a hot word, especially 
with the Levitical law, but I want you to hear the word law tonight as in the law of gravity, the law of sin and death, the laws within God's created order. All right, in the same way, like the law of gravity, these laws cannot be violated. They are, they have to be this way. It is the way it is in the economy and structure of God. Whether we like it or not, they are immovable and creation is subject to these laws. One of these laws is that God must judge sin because God is just and that also cannot be violated. Similarly, keeping in mind God's created order and God's legal system, Adam's race, the human race, we are the offender. All right, so the question, if we lost track, which I almost did here, the question is why did Jesus need to be born a man to save us, right? Adam's race, our race, is the offender. It's Adam's race that must serve the sentence to satisfy the righteous judge, and this cannot be violated. I believe this is one reason why the Savior must be a man. There's another reason that I'll highlight and then move on. Genesis 9, 5 through 6, this is pretty intense, but I think it's the backdrop of, of some of these ideas in Scripture. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. I know, it's intense, but there are required reckonings that cannot be violated Elsewhere in scripture, bound by the requirements of God's created order, there is atonement through the shedding of innocent blood. Life is in the blood. The first picture of this can be found back in the garden with Adam and Eve when they covered themselves with fig leaves. Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them opened and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Genesis 3, 21, jumping forward. The Lord God made garments from skin, for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So they had covered themselves with fig leaves. But then later on, the Lord God made garments from skin. I believe it's made clear here that God cannot accept the work of our hands to cover our own shame. So I think so often we think we could cover ourselves with our own fig leaves that we've sewn together with our own hands. But it is insufficient our hands, the work of our hands, cannot cover our shame. But the Lord covered their shame with the skins of an animal that came through the death of that innocent animal. So I think the first picture of life or shame being covered from death is right here in Genesis 3. And just as God covered their shame through the death of the blameless life, so too he would make a way for our shame to be covered through the innocent life of his son, Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing, it is the gift of God. But getting back to my point, why must the Savior be a man? According to God's created order, the law that sin causes death, and that God requires a reckoning, I believe that this clarifies the primary reason that the Savior must be a man. For without bodily form, Without blood to be shed, the requirement in God's created order could not be satisfied. This is why the incarnation of the Savior is so significant. In growing up, I, uh, maybe I wasn't paying attention, which is also you know, a trait of mine that I wish I didn't have, and I am paying for it now as well with my almost five-year-old. It's like, hey, hello. 
We're talking to you. Maybe I missed it, but growing up, it wasn't that clear to me. Uh, and I grew up in a great Bible-believing church. Why, but why did it have to be a man? Why did the Savior have to be a man? So these are the kind of questions that I would ask. But this is why the incarnation of the Savior is so significant. I'm looking forward to next week as John digs into it more. It's not just a weird choice that God had made to send his son to grow up among us as a, as a baby and turn into a, a young man, turn into adult before he starts his ministry. It's not just a weird choice, but it fulfills a requirement in God's created order. There must be a reckoning. This has to be, this cannot be violated. There is only one way. Jesus, our king, and I'm going to use that phrase because I, I think Christ, referring to the anointed, could be well translated to king, the anointed king. Jesus, our king, became flesh in order to represent the race of Adam, who was the offending race, right? Who was obligated to satisfy the requirements of God and to give us life from his blood. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The Savior must also be God. We know that John 1, 1 is clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God, that we know. No human could bear and fully satisfy the wrath of God. In order to satisfy God, the Savior had to offer a sacrifice of such a value that God would be pleased to accept it. We recall in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So, in conclusion on that point, the Savior had to be both the race of Adam and of the divine. And Jesus, and Jesus alone, fulfills that obligation. I have a whole section here of why does Jesus have the authority to save, and it's, it's along the lines of the line of David. I'm just going to fly through these. I have all these verse references. If anyone's interested, you can ask me. But the Savior will be a descendant of Abraham. This is a prophecy. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And Jesus was. The Savior will be from the house of David. You can see that in 2 Samuel 7. And he was. The Savior will be from the tribe of Judah. And he was. The Savior will be God himself. And he was. The Savior will be born a virgin. And he was. The Savior will be born in Bethlehem. These are all prophecies that were fulfilled. And he was. The Savior will be crucified. Psalm 22, 16 through 18 says, For dogs or Gentiles, would probably be a better way to read it for us today. For Gentiles encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The Savior will be a suffering servant. And he was. We see that in Isaiah 53. 
all these prophecies Jesus alone fulfilled hundreds of years before. I mean, I think we should just sit and pause and think about that for a minute. These texts, again, I have references for all of these. I'm sure you, most of you know all this already, but these were written hundreds of years before Christ. There's ever any record of Christ. And there's, there's historical records of Christ outside of the Bible, as we know. It is not debatable whether Jesus Christ lived among us. So I find this to just be just fascinating. What do we need to be saved from? So these are, these are the kind of the meat of the questions, right? And um, this one is covered quite a bit, and so I'm not going to spend a ton of time here as well. Anyone want to give a uh, jump in? What do we need to be saved from? Sin? Yes. Sin. We need to be saved from sin. We all know this. Colossians 1, 13-14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our sin has separated us from God. There's a requirement to satisfy the disobedience. And Jesus, and Jesus alone, has satisfied the requirements which enables us to be forgiven from our sins. Again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I think we're all very familiar with these ideas. If you're not, please come talk to me or anyone else after the service, and we'll talk more about it. We're saved from sin. We're also saved from the wrath of God, which can be very, it's, it's correlated, right? The wrath of God is a result of sin. But one thing I just think is interesting, when you read in Scripture all the words salvation, save us, there's, there's plenty of it throughout Old Testament and New. Israel was awaiting salvation on earth. There's plenty of Scripture that use the word salvation in anticipation of earthly rescue. But I think ultimately, the wrath of God we see in two primary ways. It could be said that there is the passive wrath of God, which is basically the penalty for sin. And then you see the active wrath of God, which would be the judgment day, where the cup of wrath is poured out, an apocalyptic day of judgment. Joel 2.31, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. For Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So there's this apocalyptic day of judgment. And the wrath of God will be poured out. But the good news is, Jesus will drink the cup, the cup of wrath. Jesus will drink the cup of wrath. We must be found in Jesus as Noah was found in the ark. Jesus is to us in the wrath of God as the ark was for Noah. And if we are not found in Jesus, we will partake in the cup of wrath. So there is the day of judgment and there is eternal judgment. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here this is probably what we grew up mostly hearing about, saved from hell. And we are. We are saved from eternal judgment. There's eternal reward. There's eternal judgment. 
There's the wrath of God before eternal judgment. These are all different ideas. That's why I've kind of like outlined them here. I know I'm not digging into very much detail, especially on the ones that we cover often, but I, I did want to highlight them and more importantly delineate them because I think we often can kind of muddle them together and, and they are different. We are saved from eternal judgment through Jesus the Savior. But it appears that this, the scripture doesn't prioritize salvation from hell specifically as much as some of the other reasons that we're covering. Some of you might disagree with that. I could be wrong, but that's what it appears, how it appears to me. Remember the first, the first original messages of the gospel. Do you remember who's preaching the gospel first? Did anyone remember? Jesus, right before Jesus, there was John the Baptist, and their message was not really about hell, right? So the gospel of Jesus Christ wasn't so much about hell, and I'm not here to diminish that, I mean, that, the reality of hell. Don't get me wrong. All I'm saying is the prioritization here in Scripture seems to be slightly different. The original message of the gospel was quick, repent for the kingdom. The kingdom of God is coming. Turn around and quit sinning and start obeying God because the king's already here and the future reign of God is starting right now. The good news is that the king has arrived. Does that sound like the gospel to you guys? It is the gospel. And the gospel, I believe, has expanded on top of that. So I'm not saying that all the other truths in our, in our creeds are not part of the gospel. But I'm just highlighting the original gospel. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time digging into hell either. I'm getting close to what I'd like to really talk about. So I'd like to talk about more of this. What are we saved to? So I think it's so... It's clear that we need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from wrath. We need to be saved from judgment. These things we've been taught many times. But another question is, what are we saved to? I think we are saved to everlasting life. Saved to everlasting life through our created purpose. So reconciled to our created purpose. Jesus Christ Jesus the King rescues us, saves us, rescues us to reconcile us to our created purpose, which I believe here is the glory of the Lord. So why did God create humankind? For what purpose? You may be familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I think the answer is in here, mostly. It goes like this. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Amen? I agree with this. But I do think there's slightly more to it. Glorifying God is our chief end. I think you could argue, in other words, to glorify God is the fruit of our creative purpose. And enjoying him is in the manner in which we are to carry out that purpose, which I'll expand on here. So why exactly did God create us? When we turn to scripture, I think we discover for what purpose God created humans, and we gain a clearer picture. Let's, let's look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It should be on the screen. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over all creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. To emphasize the point, it says here that we were made in the image of God three times. That's an emphatic uh, literary practice. Three times we are made in the image of God. In ancient biblical times, an image would have been the word used to refer to an idol statue, an idol made of stone. It was believed that the image enabled the worshiper to experience the God directly. Therefore, that statue or that image enabled them to experience the glory of the God through the image. This is what they believe. This is what they practice. This is why they built statues. They built images. They built statues of gods that they worshipped in order to experience the glory, the weight, the presence of that God in that statue. So an image was a localized means in which to encounter the glory of God. Glory can be defined as weight or surpassing worth. Having been made in the image of the only true and living God, as it says in Jeremiah 10, but having been made in the image of the only true and living God, it should be understood that we are not statue image bearers, are we? I think that's pretty obvious. We are not statue image bearers, for the living God cannot be encountered by the work of human hands. Psalm 135, 15-17 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. We, however, we were created as living image bearers, not statues, made not just by the word of God like the rest of creation, but we were formed by the actual hands of God and given life after he breathed in us the breath of life. And it says in Genesis 2-7, So as formed by hands of God, living, breathing image bearers, we were created, I believe, to be a localized revelation of the weight and surpassing worth or the glory of the only true and living God. So we were created to be image bearers. What else? Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and to maintain it. Those Hebrew words for care and maintain could also be defined as serve and safeguard. This clearly indicates that man's rule is executed through humility and stewardship. After all, we were made in the image of God, right? To rule on behalf of God. How would God rule over his creation after calling it good? He would steward over it. He would cultivate it. Psalm 8, 4 through 6. Of what importance is the human race that you should notice them? Of what importance is mankind that you should pay attention to them? You made them as little less than the heavenly beings. You crowned mankind with honor and majesty. You appoint them to rule over your creation. You have placed everything under their authority. So we were created to rule. We were created to bear the image of God. We were created to rule. What else? Genesis 1.28 says, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. This can often be brushed over. But let's remember it's God's first spoken commandment to humanity. This is not to say that if you're not having children, you're not honoring God. That's not what I'm saying. Let's, let's not get distracted by that point. The point is greater here. I want to put these ideas that we just went through together. And I think uh, the theologian and author Matthew Bates does a great job bringing clarity to the subject. In his book, Why the Gospel, Matthew Bates argues that, quote, 
God's glory has two faces, intrinsic and acknowledged. He goes on to say, in other words, this is my summary, God's intrinsic glory can never be diminished. He was and is and will always be the Almighty, full of splendor and glory by his nature. However, God's acknowledged glory that is rightly due can be wrongfully withheld from him, and it has been. And this is the fall of mankind. So in summary, God created us, having created us in his image as vice regents of the earthly realm. Again, looking back to the created order. God created us, having created us in his image as vice regents of the earthly realm to humbly and carefully rule over and cultivate creation on behalf of God in order to be a local presence of his glory and reflect and expand his glory to all creation, which in turn honors him and brings him greater acknowledged glory. And this caused me to, to take a, a look back at Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I didn't fully understand the weight of this, this verse growing up. I just simply saw it as I was not as perfect as God. And that it's true. But I have a kind of an expanded interpretation that goes like this. Considering what we just read. For all humanity has fallen short of reflecting and spreading the glory of God to all creation. All have fallen short of attributing the supreme honor rightly due to God. As a resulting consequence, humanity lost its own divine glory and dishonored itself through sin. By failing to properly honor and glorify God according to our created purpose, we all now lack the glory and honor bestowed upon Adam at creation. So we lost our glory through sin. We've been dishonored through sin. We are to spread the glory of the Lord through creation, and sin has interrupted that purpose. Our purpose and our mission was, in the beginning, it should be today, to spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's look at Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The New City Catechism says, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Savior, has made a way for us to be reconciled to our created purpose and more importantly, to our Creator. Romans 14, 79, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. We are the Lord's. We have fellowship with the Lord. John 17, I kind of want to land here before we close. John 17, 1 through 5. I'd like to really think about this together. Jesus basically explains what eternal life is. So we think of eternal life one of the first objects that might come into your mind would be clouds, you know, heaven, right? Eternal life. Maybe for some of you not. But let's, let's read in uh, John 17, verse 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So what is eternal life, according to John 17? Knowing God. That means it's not something we have to wait for. Christ interceded in our behalf, left his glory. Look at verse five. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He left his glory. He came humbly as a servant, was mocked, spit on, crucified, so that we can be reconciled to the Father and have eternal life by knowing the Father and knowing Jesus. This is eternal life. And my last question in all of this is, why would Jesus do this? You know, I used to play G.I. Joe's when I was a kid. Um, anyone else? Barbies? I'm sorry. Generalizing. What's another example? Uh, G.I. Joe's, this is going to be a terrible example, but... I used to, I was really little, right, so give me a break, but I was, you know, I'd play with them in the garden, you know, they were battling each other, and I remember having this thought about, about my G.I. Joes from the perspective of being, like, creator. I know that might sound a little heretical, but I was thinking about, because I, I grew up as a Christian, I was thinking about it, I'm like, man, if I was, if I was God, I'd just start over, you know? How hard would that be? It wouldn't be hard at all. Just whoosh, start over. You, I gave you all of this. I gave you the tree of life. Everything you need to be preserved. I believe the word of God was preserving them back in the garden. Jesus is the word of God and he rescues and preserves us today. But they were preserved for life, forever. They had all they needed and they decided, I know better. he could have easily just started over. I don't know really how much, you know, what else to say on this point, but he didn't. And scripture tells us a lot about, I think, that motive. Why not just start over? Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed king, is the one true God revealed as love incarnate. Jesus Christ is love incarnate. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. First John 4, 8 through 9. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God was made manifest among us. Jesus Christ is love incarnate. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Yes, Jesus Christ 
is God, love incarnate. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. So in closing, I know there was a lot of different ideas there, you know, and in hindsight I might have shaved that down a little bit, but what I'd like us to leave with is to leave with maybe a better idea of our created purpose and that through Jesus Christ, as we see in John 17, that we can have eternal life today, I would encourage you to not just check out. That's super easy, right? We all have that tendency. Don't just check out. Eternal life isn't isn't just in the future. It is in the future, but it starts today. You know, I grew up with the, you know, in the church and compliment a guy's shoes and he'd say, cool, thanks, it's all gonna burn, you know, just kind of dismiss, like, yeah, I still like your shoes, you know. But it's just kind of like overemphasis on like, the world's gonna burn, it doesn't matter if it matters, you know. I believe the Lord will restore the earth and establish his throne, but that's a different conversation. But eternal life begins today is my point. Let's not be checked out of this earth because we're so, we, we think that only eternal life is in the future. We should be hopeful. Don't get me wrong. We should be hopeful. We should be anticipating the world to come, the presence of Jesus. But as it says, Jesus, his own word says, eternal life is knowing God. And he has made a way for us to do that today. The last thing I'd like you to, to encourage you with is to remember specific purpose of spreading the glory of the Lord. Remember Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is a prophetic verse of what will happen one day. And if humanity even had a glimpse of the glory of God, don't you think that they would fall to their knees? It says one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess allegiance to Jesus. That will happen one day, if one they get a glimpse of his glory. And if our role, Adam's race, if our goal is to bear his glory and to spread his glory, I believe people will see it, and they will bow a knee. I encourage you to look around. Is Sonoma County filled with the glory of God, the knowledge of God's glory? No. Is Santa Rosa filled with the knowledge of God's glory? Lightly, <laughs> barely. Your, your community, your sphere. I just want you to leave tonight thinking about that. Maybe you, you know, the whole point of this sermon or message is to encourage you to go home and ponder these things on your own. Lord, my role is to literally reflect your glory and your worth to creation, to everyone around me so that they could see the glory of the Lord and bend their knee? How do I do that? Where do I start? Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you've, you've become flesh, that you became flesh. You left your glory 
that you had from the beginning of existence and you came and became flesh so that you could intercede on our behalf, willing that your blood would be spilled so that we could be rescued, so that we can be reconciled to our created purpose to bear the image of God, to glorify you. We thank you that you've granted us eternal life that begins now and the culmination in the future will be even greater. Thank you for reconciling us to yourself that we can have eternal life now, the knowledge, relationship with the living God, the creator of the universe. We thank you that we can have this eternal life today. And we ask that we, as individuals and as a body, as Refuge Christian Fellowship, that we would bring you glory as imagers. In Jesus' name, amen.